This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi folks, this is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. Here we are again. Hello. It is a sunshiny day. I'm really, it's amazing how better my body feels when I look out the window and see the sunshine. It's remarkable. It was 54 yesterday in Nashville. It's 39 right now, but the sun is shining. Makes such a difference. Yeah. And I was out today for a doctor's appointment and it was good to get fresh air. And I, I felt like I need to be doing more of that. And I, I, I just need to be taking breaks from the screen yes. and um, not be tied or tethered to this thing all the time. Yes. Uh, I need to be with the birds and the trees and the fresh air. So I, it just reminded me like there's more, to life than this fucking screen that we're on. All the right. Time. Well, I will tell you, uh, I mean, you are partnered to a massage therapist, so this will not sound odd to you, but my massage therapist was a little bit indicting uh, oh. when I saw him late last week. He was uh, working my hips and he said, how much are you sitting? Yeah. How much, how much are you sitting during the day? And I was like, well, like, you know, I mean, yes, I sit, but I walk the dog and I'm up and I'm about. And he was yeah. like, how much you sitting? Give me an hour amount. I'm like, oh, <laughs> quit judging me. Yeah. Gosh, can't you just like massage my hips and stop making me feel guilty about how much I sit at right. my desk? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I need it from him, but it also yeah. was like, I was like, Ooh. yeah. Yeah, I go, I go every four weeks. Um, because as part of my treatment for getting into my body and like yeah. living on the spectrum and whatnot, that massage, the only way I can feel my body is when someone hugs me. And so my doctor says massage is really good for me. So, you know, to be more embodied. And so right. when I go see my massage therapist, sometimes Aaron works on me, but um, I see someone who Aaron recommends that she does say, oh, your hips are opening up and, mm-hmm. you know, and I have a lot of tech neck issues. Yes. Um, so yes. massage is good for the body for lots of reasons. Right. Well, and there's enough, enough tension in the world uh, that it manifests in our bodies, yeah. whether we recognize it or not. Yeah. And um, I know that at some point on this podcast, we will get to it. But can I just tell you how 
ready I am to not see Kristen Cinema's face anymore. Oh my god. I just oh want her God. to go away. Yeah. She's, <laughs> I want her to go away. She's really problematic. And I and we know that politics is not going to save us, but I'm frustrated by her lack of um, integrity and her inability to um, kind of make difficult decisions. Well, did you see the tweet where she had a picture of her and John Lewis together? Yes. And I was like... No, Mm-mm. you don't get to no, use that. You cannot. No, there's no virtue signa- signaling no. With, when your actions are identifying the way they are. They are exactly. You, just, you can't. You can't do that. <laughs> values. I say to people, and I have a talk about this. Values are connected to habits, which are connected to practices. Yeah. So let's be very clear what's happening here. Exactly. The line is not that long. It's right. a very, very short and direct line. Well, how how are you? I am. I'm well. I'm well. Things are things are happening. It's a busy. It's becoming a very busy 2022. It's the end of January. I I know, I know. Where it? I mean, the the year is moving fast. February is next week. I recognize that the older I get, the more that this happens. And yeah. I used to complain about it, and now I realize nobody cares how much I complain. And so I'm just gonna let the let the year take me where it will, and um pray that I rest and recoup enough yeah. to, but I'm going to come to Chattanooga. I'm going to come to Chattanooga soon. I know. So we can so play Cause I, I need a little break. I, do, I know. I, and I need to be with you IRL. Yeah. So yeah. I'm excited about that. Okay. But today, today, today is a big day for us. It is. It is. We're really thrilled. We are welcoming for the second time alongside us on the activist theology project. We have very few guests who we have had more than once. Yeah. The list is very short, but yeah, like two people, like two people yeah. in in our it, we're in starting three season three in yeah. three years. Uh, we are thrilled to bring back and and welcome again into conversation um, a guest that we were in conversation with um, a year and a half ago, I guess, mm-hmm. alongside our friend Shane Claiborne. and uh, we have Lisa Sharon Harper on the Activist Theology podcast today because her new book, Fortune, um, and the full title is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All, is dropping in a matter of weeks really soon. I think February 8th, we'll have um, Lisa tell us for sure that that's the case um, once we uh, welcome her here. But this book I'm I'm really so thrilled about it. It's a it's lovely. It's um, poignant, and it speaks to what you and I talk about a lot on this podcast, which is the power of story. Yeah. And so we would like to officially welcome Lisa Sharon Harper to the Activist Theology Podcast. We are really really happy you're here, and we're really excited to talk about your new book. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. <laughs> I didn't realize I was one of uh, like uh, a very, very elite club that has come back two times. To yeah, I, I would are. say VIP. Podcast. VIP. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I made it. Mama, I, I made so, it. Here, here's the deal. I, I've always loved you, Lisa, because you have always had a very deep posture of welcome of me. From your days at Sojourners, when you invited me to actually talk about LGBTQ issues at the summit, and um, we, you know, I pushed back a little bit on like 
yeah, this sounds great, but you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you were like, I hear that. And, and, and I was like, okay, I can grow with this person. <laughs> and, um, You've, you're a wonderful conversation partner. You're a brilliant writer. You're compassionate, empathetic. Uh, you always correct yourself when you use the wrong pronoun. And I can't tell you how much that means mm-hmm. to me. And so, you know, when I found out you had a new book coming out and uh, we were texting, I was like, let's have you back on the podcast because people need to read this book. People need to hear your voice. And we're all about connecting the dots on this podcast. So I cannot mm. wait to get in to the content of your book and hear mm. uh, your own story about writing the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, um, the the whole pronouns thing, I'm old. People don't yeah. realize how old I am. <laughs> Literally, I had half a century a couple of years ago, a few yeah. years ago. And so, you know, for me, it's a whole new thing. And yet at the same time, it totally makes sense. It really does. I mean... And, and so I respect it. And yeah. at the same time, my mind has to catch up with my respect. So I really appreciate your grace as my mind catches up. But I love you, they, them, theirs. <laughs> so- <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And really great to meet you too, Anna. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be in conversation with you today. Likewise, likewise. Well, we would love for you to um, give us a little bit of an understanding of what the book is about. Um, I would describe it as a blend of um, ancestral storytelling and a call to action. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of all the meat is kind of in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to hear how you would describe it and for you to let our listeners know a little bit about the premise of the book and, and why you thought it was important for you to, to journal all of this in a way that, that made sense for folks to, to sit down and read. Um, thank you for asking that great question. I mean, the thing is, you, you, who, <laughs> it's an odd thing to write a, a, a book about your family. I mean, very few people have actually done that. Like, and I mean, multiple generations, Alex Haley being the one, the first that I encountered at like seven years old when I saw Roots. And I, and and so it's a, it it can look like a vanity project, but it really isn't. When I was going through and doing this research, 30 years of research, it was really just for me. I just wanted to know who am I? And, um, and, but as I began to uncover um, our family lineage, I started realizing that this lineage intersects with major moments mm-hmm. when racial decisions, when decisions that, const- that constructed the thing we call race happened in America. Yeah. And so it's actually a really great framework through which we can understand who we are as Americans and how we got here. And after January 6th, there's just no question. January 6th for me came in the middle of writing it, right? So I was in the middle of writing the book when when that insurrection happened. And and there was just no way for me to, to, to turn back at that point. I was like, no, look, what happened to my ancestor, the very first ancestor that was born on American soil, Fortune, Fortune Game McGee, she 
bore the brunt of the very first race laws that were passed in Maryland, the second colony, only two years after the very first race laws were passed in Virginia, the first colony. And and those were the first ever. So her body, her descendants, her life absorbed the wrath of race. Mm -hmm. And I knew, having done that research and also the research through 10 generations of my family, that January 6th happened for a reason. It didn't just poof happen. It happened because over the course of five centuries, we have made decisions in America consistently, decisions to empower and protect and entrench white male power. That is the bottom line. So when those men were up in arms on January 6th, they were an up in arms because they were losing their champion, the one who was going to great make America great again, right. make America white again, white male again. All you need to do is take a look, one look at his cabinet to understand. And they and they knew that. And so and they knew they were losing that. They knew they were losing that. I mean, if nothing else, with, with Kamala Harris being elected, um, appointed the, the new vice president and elected. And, and, and confirmed just days after that. So I decided, oh, by the way, if you hear a little jingling. That's your dog. <laughs> yeah, we're dog friendly here. That's my dog. That's my dog. My dog, um, babe. She's so great. And she's like now looking at me like, what are you going to do? Are we, are we going to play? I'm like, nope, you're not going to play. So anyway, um, you know, you, you can't take, you can't look at what happened on January 6th and not connect it to the various moments in American history where we have decided that this country is going to be for the benefit of white men. Right. You can't look at, and you can't also, you can't look at it without understanding the pushback, the resistance, the rebellion against that, that has happened consistently over time, particularly among people of African descent. My family members um, were all a part of it. So my mom was a member of SNCC. She um, she actually went door to door. She she actually um, uh, was in training with with Ruby Sales back in 1996 down in Atlanta when they did their, I think it was their first training retreat. She was a part of that. Um, when you go back, my great grandmother Lizzie was a part of the Great Migration. My great great my great 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 grandmother Leah was enslaved, most likely a breeder in South Carolina. Mm. Um, you know, and then other parts of my family have all these other intersections um, in the Caribbean, and also DNA has been able to trace us right back to our original people, the Hausa and the Yoruba on my mother's side wow. in, in Nigeria. So I know who I am yeah. and I know how I got here. And I thought, you know, we need to understand who we are from the lens, through the lens of a black woman, through the lens of a black woman's story, through the lens of the ground up, not the top down, which is normally how history is taught to us. And I think you understand that comes from a theological value, the value of um, of the reality that all of us are made in the image of God. And yet only some of us have been deemed um, worthy of protection of the law, worthy of the call to exercise dominion, rada, um, uh, stewardship of the land, stewardship of this world. So in my call to, as a human being, to exercise stewardship of the world, I gathered my family's story and I'm placing it out there to help others to understand America's story. Yeah. You know, as you talk about from the ground up, it reminds me of 
I mean, you know this, and I think our listeners know this. I was born of a Mexican woman and an Anglo father, and I'm a mixed race Latinx, and I've spent my entire academic journey studying theology and ethics, and in particular, Latin American liberation theology. And there's a, a methodological point that you raise up when you talk about from the ground up that for Latinos and Latinas and Latinx people, lo cotidiano, the everyday, is how we make theology. And what you're mm-hmm. offering us mm-hmm. from the ground up is this lo cotidiano, this piece of the everyday. Because when we institutionalize history, when we institutionalize stories, we fragment it mm-hmm. and we only tell certain parts of the story that benefit the dominant culture or those who can profit off the story, right? This is why Audre Lorde talks about breaking silence and putting silence into language and action, right? Mm-hmm. The tyranny of silence is what has created supremacy culture. So you are doing something that is very important in this book, mm. raising up the everyday and and doing some storytelling and some theologizing around this and, you know, helping us reframe our moral framework, really, Right. Because if we don't, if we invisibilize the everyday. Yeah, that's right. Then we're, we're doing bad theology and ethics in my mind. No, that's exactly right. I mean, part of the reason why we are where we are, where we are, and I say it in the book, is because we have lifted Jesus himself out of his context, right. out of his everyday, out of the reality that in the everyday context of Jesus, he was a brown colonized man who was son to a brown colonized Mother Mary, um, who was wife to a brown colonized Joseph, who goes all the way back to through, I mean, all the lineage, brown colonized people, or two of them, David and Solomon, um, brown people running from colonizers, like right. hoping not to be colonized by larger empires. So I had this conversation with a black evangelical evangelist um, not too long ago, and he tried to convince me. In fact, we were talking really just to kind of, because we knew each other way, way back, right? And we were just reconnecting to see, is there any way that we could partner? Because since George Floyd, I think he's gotten kind of a um, oh, an awakening himself of oh. the ways that that he had been used and abused kind of within white evangelicalism. Um, but even still, and I think, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where he went from here, but he tried to convince me that the Bible was all for I- empire. Uh. I was like, what? No. He said, Jesus built an empire. No, Jesus did not. Jesus was killed by empire. Right. Hello, right. somebody. Yeah. Right. And not only that, but the only two people in the Old Testament who are Hebrew, who actually are kings, are not kings of empires. They're kings of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked by empires. Yeah. And when you go back to God, God, God self, when God, um, when, when, um, when they came to him and said, yo, we want, when Solomon, we, we want a temple. We want a temple. David, we want a temple. What did, what did God say to them? Don't build a temple. Right. Don't try to be like everybody else. If you do that, you're going to have to enslave your people to build that temple. And I don't want, and what does that do? We now know you go back to Genesis 1, it crushes the image of God on earth. Right. And the image of God 
is supposed to be a marker of not only where God rules, but the health of God's domain. Mm. If the images of God, this is how the ancients would have understood it, if the images of God are crushed all over the earth, well, that means there's war against God happening on earth, and God is not winning that war. God's images are crushed. So the protection of the image of God is what I believe King Jesus, if we call him that, came to do. Is to is to reclaim the protection and the and the flourishing of all images of God all across the earth, um, and and that includes every last one of my ancestors. So it's a corrective. It's a corrective on our theology, which has implications on our politics. So can I? When I hear you say that, it it feels to me. Now, I usually say, I think, so I'm feeling this, like, I've been doing a lot of work about getting in my body. Yeah, good, good. Um, I'll have to send you the advanced reader of my of my new book. Um, mm-hmm. I feel what you're saying is that idolatry overtook people, and, and, and idolatry became the ways in which empires rose to power. I mean, we mm. I think we see that in the ways that money we, we you know we worship the all-American dollar mm-hmm. over providing food for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm wondering I'm wondering what you think about that mm-hmm. and how that lands with you. I I do. I think that that's exactly right. I might put it in a slightly different way just to say that um the problem at its core is a war against God yeah. for supremacy. Yeah. That humans who mount empires and have to dominate others in order to get there are trying to dominate the image of God, the call of people, of people groups to exercise dominion over their own right. land that God has given them to steward. Um the call and the capacity, the, the lack of recognition that God has actually called people and given them the capacity to steward the land, to make decisions that impact the land. And so as a result, um, that's where you get genocide. That's where you get slavery. That's where you get exploitation of, of low wage working yeah. uh, today, right here and now. That's where you get mass incarceration. That's where you get police brutality. Right. That's where you get health issues, um, health disparities, two, two separate healthcare systems, one for people who can't afford healthcare and others who can. Right. Um, that's where you get the haves and have nots, the nobles and the serfs. And that's where you get that. Right. And we have only perpetual that system in our politics from European times. They just basically um, repackaged it in America into a slaveocracy first. Right, right. And now they're, they're still trying to, um, to retain and go back to slaveocracy in various ways here now. Yeah. Yeah. I love that we have kind of brought this conversation kind of right to the, the, the foot of the church. Um, mm-hmm. Because as we understand, as you've rightly, rightfully reminded us, kind of who God says God is and how God would have us be in today's times, mm-hmm. you discovered a really problematic correlation between the church and the stories that you were telling in your book around 
the church's role in the 1600s as yes. it related to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us a little bit of a framework around that story and then help us understand how we maybe have or have not evolved since yeah. those since that that discovery that you made that's a great question. So back in 1662, going back, we have to go to Virginia first and then Maryland. In Virginia, 1662, the House of Burgesses there shifted how citizenship was um, was was uh, determined. Citizenship would no longer be determined through the life of the or the the status of the father, and that's because the fathers generally were British citizens. The fathers were um, the were the the planters were the planter class. They were the the noble class, right? They were raping their enslaved um, African women on their plantations in Virginia, and that posed a perceived threat to power because, according to English common law. Um, citizenship came through the father, which meant these enslaved mixed race children now began to rise up and say, I shouldn't be able to be enslaved because my father is an English citizen. And they won their cases in court, Elizabeth Key being among the first to do it. And then a whole slew after that. So those house of Burgesses, you know what they did? They're, you know, they're such law abiding people. They wanted to abide by the law. So they just changed the law. It's so much easier if you just change the law to be an unjust law. So instead of of English common law, then they went with Roman law, which is the law of partis. Um, And the law of partis says you you trace the citizenship through the mother. So that's how they did it then. That was like one of the first jerry-rigged laws, again, in order to protect white male money right? because they were losing money. They were losing free labor in perpetuity. That's what they right. were saying. We don't want to lose that, right? Because they needed all the labor they could get to, to, to harvest that tobacco and plant it. So two years later in Maryland, um, they perceive a problem. It's very different though. It's the opposite problem that's happening in, in Virginia. Not that they didn't have rapes there. They did, but that wasn't the problem they perceived. The problem they perceived was white women marrying and having children with enslaved black men. So these white women were usually indentured servants while working right alongside enslaved black men. And, um, and they were marrying them and having kids. And those kids then posed a threat because now you have this, this weird mixed race class. What are we going to do with these mixed race kids? Are they enslaved or are they free? That was the question. Um, and so what they did in the very first Maryland race law, 1664, they said any white woman that be um, that marries an enslaved black man and has children by that man shall herself be enslaved by the husband's master until her husband dies, but her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. In other words, that child and that child's child and that child's child will be enslaved. Well, lo and behold, they look up a few years later and they realize, wait a minute, they didn't expect this, or at least some people say they didn't expect it. They didn't expect that planters would now go out and force their white indentured women servants to marry enslaved black men and have children by them in order to grow their profit margin. But that's what happened. So by the time Fortune comes around, she's born in 1687. Um, she's born to a Senegalese man who had landed, whose, whose ship, we believe, landed um, on the shores of Maryland in 1686. And 
Maudlin McGee, a, um, a Scotch-Irish, basically Ulster um, Scott woman who was married to George McGee. They had, they had an affair and had a child whom they named Fortune. And by that time, the law had, had shifted in Maryland to the point where you now had a situation where Fortune could not be enslaved because her mother was white, but she could be indentured. And she was to be indentured for 31 until, until she reached the age of 31. And so they post haste. She was now about 14 when she, or when she was standing or 18 before she, when she was standing in front of this tribunal, this court, and they then sentenced her to indentured servitude until she was 31. But, you know, she also had children while she was indentured. And so she was given more time in the midst of that. Right. Um, and uh, and then her children had more children in the midst of being indentured. But never any fathers are ever mentioned in any of the court records. And you wonder why. Yeah. Until I did DNA, a DNA search for matches in my family and found those indenturing surnames in my matches on DNA on Ancestry.com. Now, here's the thing. You asked the question about the church's role. The church's role, after they realized that planters were, were now taking advantage, what they did was they shifted who would have the keys to indenture or, or slave um, enslavement. Instead of giving the, the planters the ability to decide who gets indentured and who gets enslaved, they now put those keys in the hands of the church. So the church, throughout the rest of the colonial era, not only in, in Maryland, but also in Virginia and, and I'm sure several other colonies, now became the auction block, the place where people's lives were determined, whether they were going to be enslaved or indentured. And my, lest you think indenture was like, you know, having a job, you know, with somebody like an apprenticeship. They called it actually, they always do this. They called it an apprenticeship, but it was not an apprenticeship. It was an indenture and indenture People had their ears cut off. They had their feet lobbed off. They were, they were hung. They were, they were maimed just like they would be as enslaved people, just for an infraction, a slight infraction. Um, the only difference between indenture and enslavement was that there was a time limit on the indenturing. And usually for people of African descent, that time limit sometimes was gone over. They didn't actually keep records on when the indenture started um, until the church began to keep those records. The church did. So that's, that's good, right? The church actually made, made those records known, but other people before they started that practice, people would just hold them forever, really just saying, Oh, well, we don't really know when you were started. So, you know, another year, another two years, that kind of thing. Yeah. So well, in that disgusting, I mean, it, just, it is it, disgusting. Yeah. It is disgusting. And here's the thing that that practice, that practice of jerry rigging the law, changing the laws in order to benefit white male bank accounts. Bottom line. Right. That is exactly what we just experienced um, when we witnessed um, Joe Manchin not voting um, to 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 alter temporarily the filibuster in order to pass right. Voting Rights Act, right? So the in, in the 2013, a conservative majority in the Supreme Court voted to eviscerate um, Section Four of the Voting Rights Act, and as a result, really took the teeth out of it. So there's no accountability. There's no ability to actually hold anybody to account for this right. law. Right. Um, and so. 
so they did that. And now, and right after that, Texas went out and changed its laws and 23 states went out and changed the law. And now really literally every, almost 49 states this year, actually last year in 2021, tried to change their voting laws to suppress the vote. Um, 19 of those states did it. 34 new voting laws were passed. And what this means, it's not only suppressing the, the, um, the vote, but it's also trying to subvert the vote uh-huh. by changing who's counting the vote. Right. And they're doing this in order to do one thing. And interestingly, my, my, um, my legislator, Bob Casey, out of Pennsylvania said it explicitly. He said, the reason why this is happening is because the demography is changing in America. This is nothing more than an attempt to maintain white male power. Correct. Yeah, it's uh, it is happening in in my city in Chattanooga. We are watching it it's happen happening in across Nashville. the country. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean our our districts are being redrawn in ridiculous ways mm-hmm. simply because we are the current way that our districts are drawn allow for us to have a majority of democratic voices on our city council um, <sighs> because of where people of color reside mm-hmm. and you know our our boundaries are being changed our laws are being changed um mm-hmm. it's yes we, we have we have not evolved we have not at all changed the way that we do things no we really haven't um from and the time that the fortune problem. was born yeah right and let me just say one thing that that the book fortune is not just about uncovering this evil, it is an evil pattern that we do see throughout history. We just see it kind of repackage itself through the generations. But it's also a call to repair what race broke in the world. And so those, the call to repair must move through the process of telling the truth, mm-hmm. seeking the truth and listening to the truth and then telling it. And then reparation as in repairing what right. race broke, right? And that has fundamentally to do with the recognition of the image of God in all, the call and the capacity of all of us to exercise stewardship of the world and if nothing else, stewardship of our own story. Yeah. So we get to decide how things are, are going, what, what's going to need to happen in order for things to be made well with us. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the call to forgive that which cannot be repaired, cannot be restored. Um, because if we hold on and demand something that is impossible to, to ante up, yeah. we are the ones who suffer. We are the ones who die with a rotten soul, who die not having had our needs satiated and filled. But if we forgive, if we release that debt that cannot be repaid from the ones who should be repaying it, and then call on God, saying, okay, now, God, it is your time to ante up. God can do it. God has cattle on a thousand hills, remember? Yeah. God actually is the one who moves mountains. God can move some mountains. God can move our budget. God can do it. Mm. I love that you are encouraging us into a repair and repentance model of um, posture uh, Mm -hmm. for, for the work. Robin and I, in, you know, kind of knowing the demographics of our listeners um, know that probably two thirds of our folks are identify as white. um, The majority Mm -hmm. of whom are of European descent. Mm -hmm. How does this, how does this practically work? 
how how does how does this kind of repair and this kind of repentance through both the power of story and getting our hands and feet literally dirty in the work mm-hmm. how does that how, what does that look like yeah there needs to be truth telling projects truth seeking projects truth listening projects, um, things like pilgrimages, things like um, the building of monuments to the truth so that we have public history. We, we are actually teaching history, the, the actual what happened in public spaces. So, for example, the EJI, Legacy Museum right. and Monument for Peace and Justice, that's a really great example. But even more are the plaques and the dirt collecting that's happening all over the country of the places where lynchings have happened. Right. Those plaques, they actually echo a project that was done um, throughout Europe um, in response to, and particularly Germany, in response to um, the, the, the Holocaust, where an artist was commissioned by multiple cities throughout Germany to create plaques in, in, in commemoration of the Jewish people who lived in a particular house and tell their story on the street so that we don't forget, so that we right. never, we can never say this didn't happen. Um, likewise, all of us, each of us actually has a part in this. Part of the reason why we are able, why people of European descent are able to be hoodwinked is because you've already been hoodwinked. You've been hoodwinked into thinking you're white. You're not. Whiteness is a figment. It is a ghost. It only exists in as much as we give it power. And, and we all benefited from it. Like people who are, who are deemed white by the state have benefited from that, um, from that, that, that title, but it is not real. And as a result, it dehumanizes, it lifts people of European descent out of their context, out of their story, out of their family lineage, out of their inheritance. And the only, the only thing they get in return then is power. So that's why January 6th would happen because you're taking away, you're taking away the power. So then who else, who are we now if we don't have power? You are somebody, as, as you know, Reverend Jesse Jackson would say, you are somebody, you do have a history, you are connected to, um, to a heritage and a, and a history, you have a reason why your people came here. And usually that was because of one of two things, oppression or poverty. You need to reconnect with how you got here, with the decisions that were made, the, the, the governmental decisions that were made that drove your ancestors to come to this land in the first place. You need to reconnect with your own heritage. And then maybe what you can do in that process is rehumanize mm. and make your peace with God, allowing God to be God mm. so that you don't think you have to anymore. That a preach. Hello. For those of African descent and those of other people of color, um, uh, whether they are um, people of African descent or indigenous or other people of color, for us, the call is to rise full into our humanity, into our call to exercise dominion in the world, stewardship of the world, agency in the world, to help shape the world after hundreds, even millennia of years of being um, subjugated by European powers who claimed that right and claimed humanity for themselves exclusively, it is now time to correct that, to stand full into our call to exercise agency in the world. And what that looks like for all of us, actually, not just for us, but also for people of European descent, it's going to look like researching your own family history, understanding how did you get here? 
who, who was suffering enough to leave what they had in order to come here and try something new. You got to suffer a lot to leave thousands of years of history in order to try something new. There's got to be something going on in your own world to make, to make people do that. Get in touch with your history. Understand your connection, your own family connection to the moments when race was made. Yeah. Your own family um, um, connections to to the resilience strategies that your own ancestors figured out ways to subvert the oppression, ways to um, to to survive it, and ways ways even to take that that energy that was focused on crushing us and throw it back and actually make it something that created jazz, yeah. right? That it, that cre- that created merengue, yeah. <laughs> that created um, the bomba, yeah. In Puerto Rico, right? So there's there's um, there's there's work for us to do as well, and for all of us, the work of family history so has the power to subvert those meta narratives that are spun by people in power to keep themselves in power. Yeah. The more we know ourselves, the less the less we'll be able to be manipulated. Yeah. Mm. So. We're really thrilled that Fortune is coming out soon. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, when it's going to be here, where they can find it? Um, is it available for pre-order? How do they get their hands on it? And uh, what do you want them to experience once they have it in their hands? Oh, my goodness. Okay, if you're listening, please go get uh, Fortune now, or if it's before the, the drop, which is February 8th, pre-order it now. You can pre-order it wherever good books are sold, or you can find your favorite, um, your favorite bookseller on our website at Freedom. I'm sorry, I would say Freedom Road. You can go there too, but you're not going to find the book there. Go to fortunebook.us, fortunebook.us us to find your favorite bookseller and go ahead and pre-order or order the book now. Um, you can also just follow me at lisasharonharper.com and there you can get connected with all my social media stuff and you know all the all the rest, the podcast. Um, and then also Black Fortune Month is coming up. This is February. Normally we call it Black History Month. We're actually calling it Black Fortune Month in our sphere. Yes, because you we're are. In- I yes, love that. Yes, you are. Somebody. It's yeah. called Exercising Dominion. Right. It's called exercising agency to shape the world. That's what I'm talking about. So what we're doing is we're calling on folks to take for take that month, take Black History Month to read the book and then to discuss the book. Get book studies around it and also join our online events, which are happening throughout the month. Right now, I think we have, we're up to 16 events that are happening oh, wow. in the course of the month, just in February. Um, and, and then, uh, and then join us in our call in day to, um, in support of voting rights in HR 40, which is the reparations bill and the TRHT bill, which is about truth telling in America yes. at the end of the month. Yes. I love this so much. Lisa, I I can't help but feel as if there's a little bit of hidden symbolism around the name given yeah. to this mm-hmm. woman that you are able to tell the story of mm-hmm. and that there is a goodness and riches 
that come from experiencing her story and, yeah. and, and kind of manifesting it throughout the lives that, that the way that we will manifest it once it touches our lives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really grateful that you yes. are with us thank this you. week. We, we can't thank you enough. Um, friends, we will post all of the links that um, Lisa Sharon Harper just shared with you in the show notes. And so please do visit there in case you uh, not in case, when you are ordering Fortune, because there will be no question, we know you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we are thrilled to be back with you all on season three. Listeners, uh, Dr. Robin and I encourage you to uh, follow us on Activist Theology. Uh, you can do that at Activist Theology on all of the social platforms, as well as joining us on the Activist Theology app. You can do that at atporch.com. And we will see you again next week. You know how to get your hands dirty in the work. And you know that this week our call is for you to do that by reading Fortune and engaging with Lisa Sharon Harper online. Dr. Robin? In the words of Desmond Tutu, let's become prisoners of hope. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.